Isn't it grand to be able to sing a song with the vocal characteristics of I have been redeemed? It is a lovely refrain, isn't it, to give the consideration that that's the reason why you and I can enjoy such great peacefulness, even as was part of one of those other songs we just sang as well. The fact that our sins are forgiven, the fact that our name's enrolled in the book of life, the fact that we have all eternity to look forward to in the grandeur and blissfulness and restfulness of that time. Tonight, as we come together, perhaps it would be entirely in order to express appreciation to those men who are already announced as going to take the lead in terms of teaching the classes, delivering the sermons next Sunday. Certainly very thankful for Jeff, for Adam, for Trail, for the exceptional job, no doubt, that they will do. Already looking forward, my family and I, to obtaining the tapes and listening to the good lessons that, that they will no doubt bring and, and share with each of you. Tonight, as we come to a lesson entitled Joppa in the Individual, as you perhaps noticed in the bulletin, as well as the title on the wall to my left, we'll give interesting consideration tonight, hopefully, to some matters to challenge each of us, even from a geographical standpoint, as to our stance and standing before the august presence of the God of heaven. Some introductory words, perhaps, to point us in that direction might well be these. It's always an honor to be able, of course, to serve the Lord. No higher calling in life is there than that, to employ one's abilities and capacities and capabilities in a way that redounds unto directing blessing and glory to God. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Those sobering words of Ephesians 3.21 point us to that last set of thoughts upon that particular slide. From opening cover till close, the Bible seems always to encourage us to remember that it is our choice and decision as to our standing before God. Namely, God exhorts and He encourages us to be responsive and obedient. He encourages us to make the righteous choices and the wise ones, but ultimately He does leave it to our own choice. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent that he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. That text from Hosea 14.9 reminds us also that again there's the just, those who choose to walk wisely, but there's also the transgressor and their Hosea promise they will fall, they will stumble according to their failures. I would invite you tonight to give some thought with me to the city of Joppa. And you may already be asking, what does Joppa have to do with a lesson like this? I think that as we give thought to Joppa's appearance in the sacred text, those few times that it does appear, it will in fact remind us of the very urgency of individual decision as we strive to stand justly and rightly before God. It is with that in mind, some initial settings and reflective thoughts might be in order. Here are some things we can say about Joppa. Again, it isn't mentioned all that often in the sacred scriptures. It was a city situated in southwestern Palestine. It's in fact, as you can see on the slide, some 35 miles west-southwest of Jerusalem. In other words, it wasn't all that far from Jerusalem. And in fact, in time to come, Joppa, as you'll see in just a moment, had a rather powerful role to play as the seaport or the coastal area that brought goods by trade, by other means, in fact, to the city of Jerusalem. In Joshua 19.46, we have what appears to be a mention of Joppa. 
on that occasion when Joshua and the children of Israel divided the land of Canaan after conquering it, we seem to discover that it was situated in the very extremity of the border of the tribe of Dan. However, the tribe of Dan wasn't able to hold on to Joppa for very long because soon thereafter, the Philistines overwhelmed it and it became a rather notable area or city even within their region. It is to be noted that sometime later, again, certainly by the time of David and the time of Solomon, the city of Joppa was well known as a port for the city of Jerusalem. Many times we find it mentioned, as we'll see just a bit later in the lesson tonight. Just as surely as these notes about Joppa might be of some interest, they do occur in the Bible. I'd submit to you the greatest lessons about Joppa, it seems, are still to come. It is for that reason that I thought we would look at them in some detail one at a time, and then at the close of the lesson, draw some details about each one of them. First of all, it is to the book of Jonah that we shall now go. We will remember the book of Jonah. It's one of our youngsters' favorite stories, likely in Bible hour or Bible time. And quite frankly, even for us adults, it has some very memorable lessons in it. The book of Jonah, in fact, unfolds something like this. Jonah was a prophet who labored in the time of Amaziah. As you can see near the top of that slide, he was the ninth king of Judah. And during that particular reign and that particular time, we will recall that the God of heaven gave Jonah a rather specific commissioning. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. For their cries come up before me, this great city, and their wickedness. Jonah 1 verses 1 and 2. And thus the marching orders to Jonah were very clearly set forth, namely, that here was the city of Nineveh, known for its wickedness, in fact, God even said the wickedness had come up by way of cry before Him, and as if that wasn't enough. We will remember that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. For that reason, it was a highly populated city. It was a well-known international city. It was a city on the stage of the international global community. For that reason, the greatness of its evil and wickedness had even arisen before the God of heaven. As you give thought, of course, to what Jonah chose to do, we aren't left to wonder. Each of us remember the story so very well, but I have put in quotation marks a feature that I would ask you to notice carefully. The text says in Jonah chapter 1 that Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. So after giving him this commission, we see then easily how Jonah responded to it. If you could picture a map, your outstretched right hand might well locate the position of Nineveh. Somewhat about your elbow on your right arm might well locate for you, at least in thinking, the characteristic of the location of Joppa. Your outstretched left hand would be the position of Tarshish. Jonah fled as far as he could imagine on earth to get from Nineveh. He went the exact opposite direction, and you'll notice in his effort to proceed to this city of Tarshish, he went down to a place called Joppa. And it was, of course, at Joppa he boarded a ship, headed out on the Mediterranean Sea, and that's when things began to take a very difficult turn, of course, for him. For as you can well imagine, a sea, a storm arose. The mariners, as you and I well remember, as they prayed unto their various gods, they woke up Jonah and urged him to do the same. And finally the truth came out. 
He admitted he had neglected the command God had given. He even confessed to it and they tried earnestly to keep the boat calm and make its way through the storm, but they did not prevail. Finally, they threw Jonah overboard after throwing over a number of the wares or the things that were contained on board the ship. Ultimately, after throwing him over, we will remember God prepared a great fish that swallowed Jonah. And for three days and three nights, he remained in the belly of that fish. It is on that account, of course, that chapter 2 of Jonah opens. In the concourse or in the character of that fish's belly, Jonah prayed earnestly. He, in fact, thanked God for many things, but he did pray earnestly and even reminded himself of the character of what position he was in. The last verse of that chapter, that fish vomited him out on the land, and in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, God appeared to him again. His reluctance, his stubbornness, his refusal, God gave him a second chance, and God, in verse 2 of chapter 3, said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the preaching which I bid thee to preach. To this day, that's still one of the finest messages for any preacher. You preach the preaching that God wants you to preach. This time, Jonah did that. Often, Nineveh, he went. He cried against it and urged them, In forty days this city shall be destroyed unless you repent. They repented. From the highest on the throne, even to the cattle in the field. They poured forth a character of absolute realization of their sinful state, And in that repentance, God spared the city. As we well remember, Jonah wasn't happy about that. That might be hard for us to imagine. But Jonah, you see, was not interested in his political enemies being being spared or being saved. As you give thought to all of that story, what does that remind us about Joppa? What role did it play in it? Jonah had a choice. God gave him his commissioning orders. It was Jonah who refused and headed the opposite direction. You and I might keep in mind this interesting thought. Jonah went to Joppa to run away from God. We will remember he was unsuccessful at that. God knew very well he was on board the ship and God prepared the storm. And later in the story, God prepared the shade tree and finally the worm that took away the shade tree too. God was all throughout that story. We could hope that Jonah learned a valuable lesson, but as the book closes, Jonah seems to be involved in a pity party. Far more concerned about the loss of the shade tree than over the people who in fact had just repented. The interesting features about all of that takes us to one of the final statements upon that slide. Namely the fact that here was Jonah who went to Joppa to flee from God. To in fact try to get away from his commandment, he did not want to go to Nineveh. Amazingly enough, that leads us to some thoughts perhaps on another slide. Upon his going to Nineveh, finally that second time, perhaps you and I, though he didn't, we could rejoice over the fact that they did repent and over the fact that they were spared. This message, this characteristic so far of Joppa, perhaps reminds us of this. It does tell us about the harshness of disobeying God. Though men often try it, and some in their delusion think they succeed, others perhaps in ignorance never think anything to the better, we all appreciate that disobeying God always carries stark and severe penalties. For one thing, as we give thought to the day of judgment, 
Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9 reminds us, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Finally, we notice there's something to be said here about personal choice. Every citizen of the army of the Lord is a member of that army by virtue of volunteer status. God does not coerce. He does not force anyone. He doesn't cram anybody into the kingdom. He allows you and I to make our own personal decisions. Sadly, Jonah at first chose the poor decision, the foolish one. He chose to run from God. He chose to disobey the Lord despite God's plain commandment. We well remember he ended up three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish because of it. Oh, how often man brings such sorrow and difficulty upon himself due to his rebellion, his absolute turning his back upon the God of heaven. As you keep that lesson in mind, let us look at another place that Joppa appears in the sacred text. This time seeing not only the historical circumstances, but see if we can extract perhaps a different lesson about Joppa's appearance this time. Let us go to the New Testament on this occasion. Having looked at the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, let us race to the book of Acts. In the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, we have in that reading that Brother Joy read earlier for us tonight. Beginning in verse number 32, we remember it was the Apostle Peter who occupied a very important role on the, on the stage of the Bible at this particular moment. It was this case that in during the course of Peter's ministry, as he proclaimed the unsearchable riches of Christ, as he declared so boldly and beautifully the wonderful nature of Christ, His atoning work, this particular arena brought him into this area where was the city of Lydda, verse number 32. On that occasion, he healed a gentleman named Aeneas, verse number 33. We also notice that in verse 35, many who dwelled at Lydda turned their attention to God and ultimately gave great approval and character to the nature of the work of God among them. That brings us to verse 36. We also find that while Peter was laboring at Lydda, some distance away in the city of Joppa, we find the following text. I'd invite you to read with me beginning in verse 36 of Acts chapter 9. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick." and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping, and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Some of these thoughts, it was my attempt 
to in fact put before us some of what we just read. First of all, we made mention of Peter's stay in Lydda. Now Lydda was only about 12 miles southeast of Joppa. So really, even in that day, the travel wasn't all that extensive. And as you can well appreciate, Peter had had great success in Lydda, verses 32 and 35. Beyond that, we notice that there was mention quickly in verse 36 of a very notable female disciple whose name was Tabitha. She was also known by the name of Dorcas. And it was easy to know that many things she had accomplished for the work of the Lord and the ability and talent that she was given. She made coats. She sewed together things despite the fact that we noticed she provided them to these widows, those who perhaps were unable to repay her anything for them. And yet she supplied them, she provided them, she assisted them. She did what work God had allowed her by talent and by ability to be able to do. As you can see, this good woman passed away. The text simply says in verse 32 that she became sick and died. While Peter was laboring in Lydda, this woman named Dorcas in Joppa died. The disciples in verses 38 and 39 they knew that Peter was laboring in Lydda. Word had traveled to that point. They were appreciative of the fact this was an apostle of God. And of course, Peter, by the fact that the Holy Spirit, he had been baptized and such, he had the ability to work miracles. And they sent such, perhaps, and they brought word to Peter, come to Joppa. You'll notice in verse 39, Peter arose without delay and went to Joppa. Peter came to this place, and it quickly says they brought him to the upper chamber exactly where she was. They didn't call Peter for a social visit. They didn't call Peter just to share some words of exhortation to him. They had an interest in him assisting them in the character of this woman Dorcas who had passed away. As you give thought to some of those final thoughts on that slide, Peter in fact did come, and when he did... He, of course, raised her back to life through the power of God. He showed her alive, verses 41 and following. And we notice as that scene closes, it is a very touching one in many ways. In fact, it was known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. You'll notice that earlier in Lydda, many had believed in the Lord. Now in Joppa, many had believed in the Lord. Isn't it interesting as you give thought to one of the matters there at the bottom of that slide? Whereas Jonah had fled from Joppa because he disobeyed the Lord, Peter, it seems, with haste went to Joppa, earnestly desiring to do the will of God there. Just as those two gentlemen made their own decisions, Jonah had the option to obey or to disobey, and he chose the latter. Peter had the option to come and to strive to do the will of God and work thereof in Joppa, or he also could have obeyed, and yet he chose the latter. He chose to obey and do that which God commanded. What about then some other thoughts or lessons, maybe even from this scene? First of all, let's think for a moment about Dorcas. Here was a woman who apparently was of such influence and such, dearly, such dearness in the hearts of those disciples that they were overcome when she passed away and were seemingly excited to have Peter come and hopefully do something that might in fact bring her back to life. 
they apparently had enough faith and enough confidence that here was a man of God in the vicinity. Let's at least contact him. Let's communicate to him. And he came. And in fact, he did raise her back to life. Those works that she had done. Notice again verse 36. It says she was full of good works and alms deeds. We might ask each of ourselves the question, what are you full of? Sometimes our parents might have made statements asking us at least indirectly, what are you full of, son? Full of something good? Full of something rotten? We have the opportunity to fill our basket, do we not, with things that are either noble and profitable and right, or things that are rank and things that stink. Doesn't it remind us a bit about the opening four verses of Amos, the eighth chapter? In that Old Testament minor prophet, on that occasion, God likened the people of that day to a basket of summer fruit. And on the surface, that may seem like a wonderful thing. We each perhaps are mindful of the baskets that we give away at Thanksgiving. We think about how pretty a basket of apples and bananas, tangerines and oranges and candy, how pretty that looks, how nourishing it can be to the body. I would invite us to be careful. In Amos 8, verses 1 to 4, a basket of summer fruits. You set out a basket of fruit in the summertime in the heat of the summer and what will happen in a short amount of time? The fruit will spoil and it will stink. I might submit the latter one is what God had in mind. You, who were supposed to be my people, He said, you stink. You ought to have been notable and worthy servants of mine, and yet you are full of this which stinks like a basket of summer fruit. Might I invite us to contrast that to here, what we've seen with Dorcas. She was full of good works. Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11 challenges us to be full of good works and deeds. Does that characterize your life and mine? It is again a matter of personal choice, isn't it? In Philippians 4 verse 8, we have these words of reflection as to how we can begin that journey and that walk. In fact, he said, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue... If there be any praise, think on these things. What is it then that you and I think on? For it is almost a guaranteed certainty that that on which we dwell will emanate into our speech. It will emanate into our actions. It will emanate into the places we visit. So that if we fill our mind with wholesome things, true things, honest things, pure things, just things, lovely things in those matters of good rapport, then you and I perhaps like Dorcas will be a person full of good deeds, full of alms deeds by which we not only can lead ourselves to heaven, but those that we love, and even our church family and others whom we have opportunity to influence. You can see how much influence Dorcas had. And she was a woman. She didn't step beyond the sphere that God had given her to labor in, but oh, how she touched the lives of people. Many of us can learn lessons from that, can't we? seeking to use the abilities we have to touch the lives of people and by that means serve them in a way that they can come to know the Savior whom we trust and whom we love as well. You'll notice furthermore that that influence that she had was described in these ways in verse 38. Lydda was nigh to Joppa 
And these disciples, in such love for her and such appreciation of her, sent to bring Peter. And so they sent two disciples, two men, and therefore they went. It is with that in mind, perhaps another thought. And that challenges us with now some summary lessons about the two instances that we focused on most with respect to Joppa. First of all, in the book of Jonah. We remember Jonah fled from Joppa trying to run from God. In Acts, Peter went to Joppa desirous of performing or at least assisting in the work of God in that place. Joppa perhaps challenges us in ways then like this. I highlighted it as follows. The condition of the heart determined the concourse of each one of these men, didn't it? Joppa, for Jonah, he fled from it because he didn't want to do what God said. He, in fact, was not interested in the slightest in Nineveh being saved. They were the enemies of his country. It would be somewhat today as if a missionary would absolutely refuse to go to Russia because Russia is our political enemy. However, they have souls just like we do. They are human beings as we are. They speak a different language. Their skin tone often is different. But they nonetheless will all stand before the judgment bar of God, will they not? Thus, in retrospect, Jonah was a rather sorry prophet in some ways, but a very notable patriot. In Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1, do we not see lessons along that line even for us today? Jesus spoke the parable of the sower of the seed. We will recall the sower went forth to sow, and the first seed that he sowed went into the wayside soil. Some others went into stony ground. Other soil went into that one which was corrupted with thorns. And there were some that went into fertile soil. We notice that Jesus quickly spoke about some of the features of it. He said that on the wayside the birds came by and ate it up. It never even begun to grow. That which went into the stony ground, it did begin to germinate and it did grow. But when the hotness and the dryness came, there wasn't enough earth to sustain it. And so it withered away. That one which fell amongst the thorns, it also grew. But there were thorns there, and so they also choked it out, for they took the nourishment from the soil. And so as the plant grew, it was choked out eventually with all the thorns. But that good ground, we well remember that it brought forth much, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some a hundredfold. Later the disciples asked about the interpretation of that parable. Jesus explained it. He explained it like this, Those on the wayside soil are those that hear but do not understand. And the devil catcheth away that prior to it bringing forth any fruits. And so we must certainly be on guard about being a wayside kind of soil. We must not have a heart that is of that variety. We must be receptive to the Word of God, not defiant against it, not negligent of it, not uninterested in it. What about the stony ground? Matthew 13 again. We notice this time he said, This is like those who are such that the word is sown and they hear it. And they may even receive it with joy. However, we notice there's not any deepness of earth. And so when persecution comes, when affliction due to the word arises, they give up. And it withers away and their faith is crumbled and crushed. You and I need to have a heart more receptive than that so that even when afflictions arise, 
we might stand four square on the character of 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, in which Paul there wrote to Timothy and said, All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The thorny soil. We notice these are such that again the word was sown. It came forth, however. What did the thorns represent? In Luke's exposition of this parable, he defines it exactly. He said it identifies the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. When we become focused upon those things and they choke out the word, we all understand that the cares of this world can easily take up all of our time if we will let it. Satan will happily take 168 hours of our week and just slowly and gradually inch God out of our life. And if we aren't careful, we will happily let him do it. Focusing all of our efforts on what this world has to offer and all the while thinking that we are giving God his just due. Five years we turn around and ask, what happened? I remember those times I faithfully attended the services, but hmm, I don't seem to go anymore. I remember the time I prayed daily, but I don't seem now to pray even once a week. I remember the time I gave attention to reading the Word of God, but now it seems covered over with dust. That kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. It happens gradually. It happens slowly. It happens incrementally. But you'll notice that a receptive heart is one that will not let that happen. Because we're interested in these things much like Dorcas was, appreciative of the fact that these good works must fill our thinking. Should not our proper response inevitably be much like these three examples from the Word of God? In Acts 9 verse 6, on that road to Damascus, that time known as Saul, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Nothing was off limits. You see, he responded very differently than Jonah did. Jonah heard what God said, but he went the opposite direction. Saul of Tarsus heard what God said, went exactly into, went exactly into Damascus. And he became, of course, one of the greatest of the disciples of the New Testament era. In 1 Samuel 3 verse 9, we have another notable example. This time it was Samuel and Eli. We recall the little lad Samuel who said, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. He had an ear attuned to the frequency of God, ever excited and anxious to hear it. Maybe the last example from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. We notice on that occasion there's a song in our book based on the character of it. Here am I, Lord, send me. We notice in all those examples we had a far different reaction than we saw in the life of Jonah. We did see, though, much more along the line of Dorcas and much more also along the line of Peter. You and I should be wholly receptive then to the teaching of God, anxious to hear it, quick to apply. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. In Psalm 119, verse 103, we see on that occasion, Thy word was sweet to my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you and I look upon the Word of God that way in sweetness, in wholesomeness, in goodness, in beauty? The receptiveness of our heart will likely depend on how we view that Word. If we view it as something man wrote, if we view it as something that has mistakes within it, issues that concord or relate to matters of errors, we likely won't be too happy to read it. 
But yet, if we view it as the infallible Word of God, we'll view it the same way Job did in Job 23, 12. I have esteemed His words more than my necessary food. Perhaps finally, you'll notice those Bereans form such a notable example along the line, much like Dorcas. In Acts 17, 11, was it not said of them, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. The receptiveness of the heart has been our subject this evening, and we've used the city of Joppa to point us in the direction of the personal decision that rests with you and me. In closing that slide, we'll also use that to move to the conclusion. It was to the Romans that Paul wrote in Romans 6, beginning in verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but now ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. The Romans had made the right decision. Whereas they had been the servants of unrighteousness, he says, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Have you and I all been obedient from the heart to that form of doctrine delivered to us? If not, why not? There surely is no good answer to that. In fact, here's the final matter to the lesson tonight. What kind of heart then is descriptive of yours and mine? Is it receptive in a positive way, much like that of Peter, as he went to Joppa to do the bidding of God? Or are you and I more like Jonah who fled from Joppa to run away from God's command? May it ever be the former and may it never be the latter. Because sure enough, if we fight against God, Acts 5.39, Acts 5, we are guaranteed to lose. For if haply you be found to fight against God, Gamaliel said, surely you will be overthrown. This very night, as you analyze your life and as I do the same for myself, if there are things causing you to have a division currently between you and God, maybe to this point you've been more like Jonah. You've been running from what God has urged you. He continues to knock at the door of your heart, Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21. But you need to open it. Let Him in. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Tonight, understand the burdens of your life are more than you can bear. I'm not saying that as an insult to your personal strength. I'm not saying that as an insult to the character and integrity of your intent. I'm saying that because that's what the Bible teaches us. Jeremiah 10, 23 still says it like this. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. One far smarter than I shall ever hope to be wrote that, said that, delivered it, revealed it. Will you not believe it? If tonight you aren't a New Testament Christian because you've never been baptized, why not this very night? We'd be happy to take your confession, to assist you in making note of your belief and repentance. If you have begun that walk with the Lord, but due to various and sundry distractions and efforts of the devil in your life, you have in fact become unfaithful in a public way. Let us pray with you tonight just as was done for Simon in Acts the 8th chapter beginning in verse 20. If we could be of help to you tonight, 
for prayers of strength or for your initial obedience, if we could be of any assistance, will you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing the chosen song?